Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. Welcome everybody to Nightlight. As always, our thanks to Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please check him out on the internet. Just look up Native Storytellers or Ken Quiethawk it and you will find an amazing amount of work and, um, and insight into how Native Storytellers have preserved their cosmology and their history, which is a lot more fun than the way we do it in books. So, that said, um, I, have a, I have a fascinating guest with me tonight, today, um, <clears throat> depending on where you are. Uh, I have Jim Willis back with us, and um, we've had him on for a number of shows on, on some of his fascinating books, and he is so eclectic in, in what he does. It's really quite amazing, uh, the topics that he hits. Um, I want to take a little bit out of one of his, one of his books here, and it, it kind of tells the story of what we're going to be talking about. Sometimes religion is not enough. We need more. Sometimes scientific explanations are insufficient. We need more. Sometimes mythological relevance doesn't quite satisfy. We need more. Sometimes psychological motivation doesn't do it for us. We need more. Sometimes philosophical discussion falls short. We need more. And that's what he has done with this amazing trilogy. In 2021, he released his trilogy, Individual and Primal Unity, published by Dimension Fold Publishing. It explores the origins of human ego through, in the words of author, educator, and psychologist, Dr. Paul Lisley, the lens of archetypical depth psychology, Eastern wisdom, natural spirituality, and shamanism, blending native philosophies and behaviorism. He examines the story of Merlin, Robin Hood, and Snow White as 
three fascinating facets of ego's struggle. Jim is a theologian, historian, and musician. He earned his bachelor's degree from Eastman School of Music and his master's from Andover Newton Theological School. As an ordained, he's an ordained minister for over 40 years, and he served as adjunct college professor and guest lecturer in comparative religions, cross-cultural studies, and contemporary spirituality. His background led him to writing more than 20 books on religion, the apocalypse, spirituality, and arcane or buried cultures, specializing in research, bridging lost civilizations, suppressed history, and the study of earth energy, dowsing, and out-of-body experiences. To say he's eclectically oriented and well, well certified and prepared to talk on just about any subject there is, um, is an understatement by far. So welcome to the show, Jim. So glad to have you back again. Oh, thank you, Barbara. Thank you for those kind words. I appreciate it. But, you know, every single time I listen to that introduction, not only the music, but that wonderful voice, I, I just fall in love all over again. That's, that's such a beautiful introduction. <laughs> I, just, I just love it. I really do. Well, thank you. And, and of course, Ken Quiet, I pulled Ken Quiethawk out of um, retirement to do the intro for me because... <laughs> I have been looking and listening around for a voice to read the intro, and there's just no voice like him. And, oh, it's um, wonderful! Yeah, yeah, he does. He does. He makes me feel good every time I hear, <laughs> hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and that that music is just wonderful too. I really enjoy it. <clears throat> I, you know, it it all it all came together magically, and um, you know, it's it's. Uh, I, I can just about lip sync the whole intro now. We've heard it so many times, but <laughs> but I just uh, you know it, you know every time every so often you write something that you just fall in love with, and it doesn't matter if anybody else falls in love with it. If it if it if it's magic for you, it always starts yeah. me off with a very positive, exciting, energetic, and certainly yeah. it, you know I read I read the books before we do the interviews always. So does Mark. And of course, for this, I read three books. <laughs> I, it was a little bit of a push, but but it was well worth it. And and I have to say, um, you've taken fairy tales to a whole new level here. And um, I'm fascinated with, first of all, how did you what what inspired you to take fairy tales? and weave around the, 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 the journey of the ego. You know, as a teacher, um, you're always looking for ways to engage uh, the people you're dealing with. The same thing in the ministry, you know, preaching sermons and all that. You're looking to uh -huh. engage people. And this whole subject of uh, whenever you start talking about something like um, individual and primal unity, you know, that <laughs> smacks of yeah. academia so much. And I, I wanted to to bring forth the idea of something that I was really concerned about, and that's the rise of um, ego and its morphing into narcissism in our modern uh -huh. society because I find echoes in this modern society of uh, narcissistic behavior I find echoes in ancient cultures of the past, and I wanted to let people uh, 
grapple with the idea that there is a very good chance, given the horrible destructive uh, technologies that we have at our disposal today, there is a very real chance that we could become Earth's next lost civilization. Um, and uh, when you start to think about it, for instance, when, when Plato was talking about a lost civilization that we've come to call Atlantis, whether or not people believe in the story of Atlantis as being historical, we certainly have to take it seriously. When he said, um, for many generations, they obeyed the laws and loved the divine to which they were akin, akin to the divine. And he said they reckoned that qualities of character were far more important than their present prosperity. That sounds like us, doesn't it? He, and he goes on to say, so they, they bore the burden of their wealth and possessions lightly and did not let their high standard of living intoxicate them or make them lose their self-control. But when the divine element in them became weakened and their human traits became predominant, they ceased to be able to carry their prosperity with moderation. Now, this is what Plato said 2,500 years ago about the civilization that uh, we now call Atlantis. And it becomes either an historical reality or a metaphor, because I see the same thing going on. And if that wasn't enough, uh, if you want to turn to a different author, now being, a, being in the clergy, I'll turn to the Bible, but uh, you know whether or not anybody accepts the New Testament of the Bible or not, uh, you know, just listen to the, the message of it. Uh, the Apostle Paul said in Second Timothy, uh, it's, it sounds like he's talking about Atlantis, but he's talking about us. He said the very same thing that Plato said when he said, mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, uh, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They will have a form of godliness, but they will deny its power. Now here's Plato talking about a lost civilization in the past, and here's the Apostle Paul talking about a future civilization, ours, in the future. And you just you just can't help but but think that wow, this whole idea of ego and narcissism is is real. It's happened before. It seems to be happening right now before our eyes. And I wanted to engage people in this because obviously. If we're going to make any great changes to our culture, our civilization, uh, it's not going to come from the top down, not going to come from the political spectrum, because frankly, the political spectrum is where we see <laughs> ego and narcissism run amok. It's going to have to come from the grassroots. And so I wanted to engage people on a grassroots level. And I knew that everybody was at least nominally familiar with the story of Merlin. And of course, I've been an um, Arthurian for I don't know how long now, many, many, many years. And um, I, I really have a tendency to, to believe that the, the story of Merlin and Arthur um, 
is a, a, a very deep and rich story that in some ways describes what we're going through today. And that led us into the idea of uh, ego and earth magic. And then uh, when I wanted to say, well, how do you live in a place where ego and narcissism run amok? And it occurred to me that the story of, of Robin Hood, and we can go into these in detail later, but the story of Robin Hood um, really could appeal to us and tell us how do we live in a society that has just uh, become so ego-driven and so narcissistic. And then, of course, uh, I had to finish it up with the book that I actually wrote first. I wrote Little Snow White first, but it's about ego and innocence, and it's a return to that innocence and hopefully uh, showing us a way out, that the way out of this ego-driven narcissistic tendency that is in the world today. The way out is not to fight it with more ego and more narcissism, but rather a return, a return to innocence, to what we can be. That's where the trilogy came from. It wasn't meant to be a trilogy. I just wrote the story of uh, Little Snow White first, and then I realized, oh, this is not enough. It needs more. And that led to Merlin uh -huh. and then Robin Hood. Well, I, you know, it's, there's a phrase, and I don't know who said it first. I, I, uh, I have stopped trying to to pin wonderful phrases on anybody because the last time I, <laughs> I decided to uh, to say, oh, this is mine, it turned out it was Benjamin Franklin's, and now I'm just saying maybe I'm just a reincarnation of Benjamin. But, but that 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 old saying of um, people who don't understand history are doomed to repeat it. Yes, and I absolutely. do. I do feel that we are in a repeat cycle here, and and you know, yeah. even I can see, you know, the repeat going back to you know World War One and Two. So, yes. and and it it does, it it bothers me because you do see these cycles, and so many times in in history, especially the cycles are so, so so far spread apart that you don't see the connection, and yet they're there. Mm -hmm. And yeah. and I think yeah. I think we are in one of those loops right now, and it's not that we're going up; we're going down. And yeah. and yet there is, seems to be um, an emergence here. Uh, and and when when times change, when there are major major shifts in time and root races and stuff like that, there always seems to be. Um, people of wisdom who are integrated into the cultures to give people understanding, hope, and faith. And I do believe that you, you, we find those individuals, and they don't have, they don't have name tags, so you, you can't go around looking for them, but, but you do find their wisdom seeping into, into your life and, and your consciousness if you're aware and looking for it. Yeah, it... We often look back in history and say these things happened, the sudden collapse of the Mayans or the sudden collapse of the Aztecs or the collapse of the Roman Empire. And we talk about it like one day it's there and one day it's gone. It, it takes, uh, in many cases, it takes a, a, a lifetime or many more to come to uh -huh. the point where a, a civilization manages to destroy itself. And um, quite frankly, I, I think we've seen in the last 70, 80 years of American history, um, and probably this, the 20th century, um, 
we've we've seen a slow and and gradual decline. Now that doesn't mean to say that everything is bad, but it means that we have uh, developed unbelievably dangerous toys, uh, technologies that are able to reach out and and accomplish destruction and things that we've never seen before. But um, it's happened so gradually that we really haven't become aware with it. Uh, and we and when these technologies develop, they tend to develop relatively quickly when they come. I mean, just look how <laughs> I I remember the days when no one ever, ever heard of a cell phone <laughs> you know, or a smartphone. And now look how <laughs> fast it's it's taken over our whole culture. And when it happens like that, um, when it happens within a course of our lifetime, we become accustomed to it and we don't realize how widespread it is. But when we look at any number of different places, the political system um, and how we can point a 20 or 30 year, um, basically a collapse of people talking to each other instead of at each other uh, in the environmental uh, world. Uh, we never really thought we could you know, destroy the whole earth. There were people you know, like Rachel Carson, who tried to warn us about it way back in the 60s. And we just said, oh, maybe, maybe it'll happen. Maybe it won't. Well, now it's really happening as the people of California, you know, uh, and and the same thing with um, with warfare, with modern warfare. Boy, you you look at the tremendous destructive capabilities of stuff that's going on in Ukraine right now. And the the innocent people that are just dying by the thousands and put it all together and you just realize we're we're in trouble and i know a lot of people who are optimists who are glass half full people say well you know yeah but there's a lot of good stuff and they're right there is a lot of good stuff in the world uh, thank goodness for it but on the other hand um Boy, these are pretty destructive toys we're playing with and i'm not sure we have the morality and the ethics to control them well, and, and our culture, too, when you stop to think about it, we used to be community-oriented, and now I know, I know, I personally know people who in the same house will text each other room to room instead of walking to the room and speaking yeah. personally. So, yeah. so you know, yeah. we, we, we have become, I, I can't believe it. And it's, it's, I, I know me, it's like, it, it, what happened to, uh, oh gosh, you know, I old-fashioned here. What happened to talking around the dining room table at you know mealtime? Yes. That doesn't happen anymore. I mean, the things. No. no. I, I my my Everybody, mother used to talk every, about you know, you know how how free and open everything was, and people didn't lock their doors. And now, you, you, you know, you're you're yeah. more or less huddled into your own home and. You imprison yourself and you lock yourself away, and so you don't have the one-on-one. Churches don't have congregations like they used to. Um, no, no. Temples, any any organized religion. So right. yeah, so, you know, you know, it's it's. Oh, go, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say things have changed so radically in the last ten years, and people, yeah, yeah. you know, people. I heard somebody say, well. You know, it, it'll be nice when we get back to normal. And I just looked at them and I said, "This is the new normal." Yeah, yeah. We're not going back. You know, Ed, Edward Edward Gibbons, 
uh, way back in 1783, wrote a book called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. Uh-huh. And I couldn't believe it. Uh, he he came up with five reasons why he believed the Roman Empire, which once ruled the world, he believed the Roman Empire fell. And these five reasons that he gave back in 1783, analyzing a, a civilization that existed uh, 1,800 years ago, number one, he said, the number one reason the decline and fall of the Roman Empire came about was because sports and entertainment received more and more money while the plight of the poor was neglected. Number two, he said, money went to the military rather than the public good. Number three, violence in both games and public life became more and more accepted and prevalent. And number four, people's faith in government was undermined and justly so. And finally, the fifth reason was religions grew fragmented and became a cause of dissension rather than unity. Goodness gracious, uh, Edward Gibbons wrote those words in 1783, talking about a culture that listed, that fell, began to fall about 1,800 years ago, and it sounds just like he's talking about us, doesn't it? It does, and, and when you stop to think, the United States was formed as an experiment. Yeah. And, and I think it was Benjamin Franklin who said, I'm pretty sure he did say this yes, one. Yes, you know, yes, it was. It, it's a good thing. I, I know what you're going to say, and it was Benjamin Franklin. Yeah, yeah. he said, yeah, they, they, they asked him when he, when he walked outside the building where they were meeting, Mr. Frank, or Dr. Franklin, what kind of a government have you given? And he said, it's a constitutional republic, or a democratic republic, if you can keep it. <laughs> Those were his yeah. exact words. And now we're beginning to wonder. And it, I, I think it all has to do with that that rise of ego. Um, I, I guess if, if we're going to be talking about these books and the rise of ego, I'd probably better uh, explain exactly what I mean when I'm talking about ego and narcissism because, uh, I mean, everybody okay. has different ideas. And sometimes when someone says, here's the word ego, they just automatically mean, oh, he's got an ego. Well, all of us have an ego. Ego isn't necessarily yeah. bad. But sometimes when ego begins to grow, it grows towards something called narcissism. And there's, there's signs of a narcissist. And see if any of these sound in, in terms of our political leaders, in terms of our community leaders, in terms of our religious leaders. See if any of these ring a bell. The first, um, the first sign that psychologists look for in terms of narcissism is a sense of entitlement. Or that belief that, uh, oh, I am superior to you and I deserve special treatment and uh, other people should be obedient to my wishes and the rules don't apply to me. Sense of entitlement. Um, I, boy, I hate to say it, but the Internet has uh, supplied this. Everybody can now be the head of their own little universe, you know, and just because I uh-huh. put it on the Internet, I expect other people to do it. And, so that sense of entitlement is is just growing, but there's another. Um, it, it, that sense of entitlement leads to the second uh, um, sign of narcissism, and that's manipulative behavior or controlling behavior. 
um, a narcissist will probably try to, to, to impress you first and, and please you. But eventually, uh, their own needs always come first. And uh, when narcissists relate to other people, they ought to keep people at a distance. They want to maintain their control. And they may even exploit others uh, just to gain something for themselves. Um, idea of narcissism, the third, a trait of narcissism is a need for oh, admiration, uh, the constant need for praise. Um, people with this behavior, uh, they get their validation totally from other people. And they often brag or exaggerate their accomplishments just for recognition. Uh, how many followers do I have on my social media platform? Uh, how many people tuned in? How many people responded to my latest Facebook post? And all this kind of stuff. That need for admiration. The idea that it's so important. I still don't understand. I just don't get it. The need of people to say to take a picture of what they're eating in a restaurant and put it up on Facebook before they even take a bite, you know, they want to show the plate <laughs> as it comes out from the kitchen, just to say, look where I am, look what I'm eating, you know, who cares, you know, I mean, come on, <laughs> it's, it's, it's ego run amok, it's narcissism, the, the, but the fourth trait, now we really get personal, this is a lack of empathy, and the narcissist is just simply unwilling, or maybe even unable to emphasize with the needs or the wants or the feelings of other people, and it, they won't take responsibility for their own behavior. It wasn't my fault. And the the final trait, uh, oh, and we see this so much, it's, it's arrogance. People with narcissistic behavior, they always see themselves as superior to others. So that's why they can become rude or abusive when they don't think they re, uh, they receive the treatment they think they deserve and they hold themselves superior and they may speak or act um, rudely toward uh, waiters or waitresses or uh, workmen or you know people who do things for them. they 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 uh, they speak rudely because they say thing I'm, I'm superior to these people now this is this is narcissism it but it doesn't necessarily mean ego. And this is why it was so important to, to I think, um, uh, define these terms. In, in my way of, of the, how I treated it in the book, the ego is, is, is necessary to all of us. When we leave the source and come out here to the edge uh, in this material existence, um, we have a tendency to think of I, because now out here, we're not experiencing oneness and unity as we did before we incarnated and became human um, or physically human. Um, but now out here, we came out here to develop the idea of what an individual is. And that's, I think, what ego is. Ego is the I. Have you ever said, like, I have a brain, I have a body, I have arms, I have legs, I have this, I have that, I have a soul, I have... Well, who is the I? That's the ego. So it's necessary. But boy, when ego gets out of control, look out. It turns to narcissism very quickly. Yeah, and it's, it's it, you know, I think one thing that, that, that I recognize, I, um, is that, that, that a healthy ego can easily slip into narcissism and be caught and dragged back in. 
and yeah. um, it, it's it's something that I think probably all of us wrestle with from time to time. And, you know, yeah. it's kind of like, let's do a reality check here. Just how far amok have I gone? And, yeah. and um, you know, kind of jump it back and say, okay, you know, that was a bit out of hand. Let's, let's correct that. It, it, it's not something that is, that is kept in control constantly. Everybody has the, the uh, everybody has the ability, and the and you know will slip here and there and, and get a little ahead of themselves and get jerked back. I know I call those my two by four moments where yeah. the universe smacks me in the head and says, "Who do you think you are?" <laughs> you know? Yeah, that's right. And and you know when when we look back on our lives, it's funny you should mention this because that's exactly uh, where I've been in my life the last. Uh, a couple of days, I, I have come to believe firmly in um, in spiritual guides and in unseen angels or whatever we want to call them, um, watchers who look over us. And I look back on my life and I realize anybody who's a, a public speaker or anybody who's a teacher who stands up in a pulpit or who writes books, it's really easy for us to get the idea was, well, I'm I'm up here elevated above everybody or I'm the one in charge of the class or I'm the one in charge of the sermon or the, the I'm the one writing the book and all this kind of stuff. So aren't I special? And so I know we all have those tendencies, but I think in my own life, um, I, I look back and I, I have, I've just come to realize in the last couple of days that um, I have always, I, I've always wanted or, or been kept from the idea of becoming, uh, you know, as a pastor of a church. It was always a small church, never a big church. Mm-hmm. As a teacher, it was always in small uh, colleges, never, never great big huge colleges. And I, I think, uh, even in terms of my 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 writing, I've never written a bestseller or anything like that. I I think those unseen angels have been watching over me, protecting me from myself. I really do. They they have. Uh, it would have been very easy for me to uh, feed those narcissistic tendencies that we all have, but I, but I'm very conscious that I have it very, very easy for me to feed them. And so I'm just thankful that in this life, as I look back on my own life, we're not alone. You know, we're, we're being guided by uh, forces and powers that will welcome us at the end and thank goodness for them. What would we do if they just left us to ourselves? Okay, somebody somebody once said to me, what do the people that follow you think of, you know, the radio show and all of this stuff that I've done? And I, I looked at them and I said, I would be horrified to think that anybody was following me because I don't know where I'm going. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to put it. And, and, it, yeah. and, and you know, it's, 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 it's a different journey for everybody. And yeah. <clears throat> those people who try to replicate somebody else's journey, you know, end up in a maze because um, yeah. it's not their journey. So, yeah, right. and everybody's journey is special and it's designed especially for them individually by themselves. And yeah. it's, it's a, uh, but but you're right. I mean, the ego is is um, having a healthy ego is a good thing. Having a too healthy ego can get you in trouble. 
So. Yeah, yeah. You know, it was a funny thing. I had um, an out-of-body experience, and I talked about this in my book, uh, Quantum Akashic Field, uh, and mm-hmm. we're kind of a field guide for the astral traveler. I think you and I talked about that before uh, when it first came out. Um, yeah, I had an experience. Yeah, I had a, a an experience of uh, going out of body and meeting a uh, a woman who uh, was trying to guide me through a forest. And she was going to become my guide and teach me how to get through this forest. And in doing so, we went down into this deep underground, oh, it was almost like a safe underground with all kinds of dials and things. They had no combination to get in. And in my experience, um, I began to get claustrophobia. And I said, how, how do we get out of here? And she told me the magic way to get out. But in doing so, she said to me, this is where I have to live when you die. And at that point, I realized that this woman was my ego, uh, which surprised me. I hadn't expected it because I had never pictured my ego in the feminine before, but that's who it was. She was my ego. And she was very much aware of the fact that when this physical body died, she would cease to exist. Now, that's a fearful thing you know, for the ego to all of a sudden realize. I mean, I, I believe human humans live forever. We are eternal beings. But the ego wow. that we have out here on this, on, on, on the, what I call the rim or this perception realm, the ego that we have here uh, definitely has a shelf life. When we die, the ego, when this body dies, the ego dies with it. And she was taking me to the place where she was, was was going to where she said this is where i have to go when you die her grave in other words and it it really hit me that in a lot of sense the ego is acting out of fear um because it knows it's time it's short and uh the ego is is afraid that's why so many times when we talk about i which is the ego we we use it in terms like I'm afraid that this is going to happen, or <laughs> I don't know, or I question that, or I, and there's the ego talking. It it, it, it knows, and, and it's afraid. And I think the fear of death that most people have comes from the ego, uh, the ego that is the individual. Um, so when the Bible says perfect love casts out fear, what it's going to say is the ego is all about I and me and mine, and perfect love is all about loving you and everything and entanglement and connection and uh-huh. all that kind of thing. And it's a, it, it's it's something to know that in our mind. It's quite a different thing to feel that in our hearts. I'm afraid. Oh yeah, there's a the 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 distance the distance between the brain and the heart is is exceptionally wow. long trip. Yeah, you know, that's that, a wonderful way to it, put it. Yeah. It's uh but I you know it's funny because I I have um the, the element of ego comes up over and over again. I I had I've had a number of people who have told me, you know, this is my last incarnation. I'm finished now. I don't have to ever reincarnate again. I don't ever have to come down to the earth plane again. I'm done. I've yeah. learned it all yeah. and 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 I used to argue with those people, and now I don't argue with them anymore, and I say, you know, you're absolutely right. You will never be on the earth plane again. However, your spirit may have another thought or two. 
That's a good way to put it. That really is a good way to put it. Yeah, and, and I think it comes to the fore most because we thought we identified the ego with fear. And I think ego tends to rise in uh, in times which are changing because uh-huh. change always involves something new, the death of the old and the birth of the new. And that's always a fearful thing. Uh, that's why I began this trilogy with the story of Merlin the Magician. Um, I, I think the, the uh, Arthurian story of Merlin and Arthur, uh, on, a, on a metaphorical level, can really teach us what it's like to live in a, cult, a time of great spiritual change in a culture. When, when you think about it, Merlin represented the old earth religion. Uh, when you think of Merlin, you think of him being out in the trees and dripping with moss and all this kind of stuff and, and talking to the earth and feeling uh, the earth magic and all that kind of thing. That was, that was Merlin, the essential, uh, essential uh, pagan, the essential um, well druid, if you want. But Arthur represents a totally different thing. Arthur uh, was raised in a Christian household. And uh, he represented a time of change. Christianity was beginning to drive out the old religion. Um, Arthur, the bear, uh, Arthvar, the bear, was beginning to drive out Draco, the dragon. That was Merlin. Merlin was the dragon energy. And Arthur is all about the future. And Christianity was starting to to move in and try to eliminate this whole idea of, of any kind of pagan thought or earth energy thing. And so... Um, uh, Arthur and Merlin, uh, or Merlin and Arthur, rather, represent a change in culture, uh, a change of being, a change of spirituality. Uh, Arthur is, I mean, of, of the city. Merlin is of the, the, the woods. And Arthur's knights go out uh, looking for dragons to slay. They're slaying the old dragon religion. And they're searching for the Holy Grail, uh, the great Christian symbol, the cup of the Last Supper, and all this kind of thing, where Merlin uh, finally, uh, just like Puff the Magic Dragon, dragon, he sadly slips into his cave, you know, Um, but he's not dead. He's still there, and he's just Uh sleeping in his crystal cave until the time comes when he's needed again. And so we that's the time of change that was represented here. Um, uh, Merlin understood that everything was connected, uh, nature and people, that we were of nature. Christianity tended to build walls around itself. You know, Merlin would worship in a grove of trees, whereas Christianity would build walls around itself, big stone walls, and say, come on in here, out of the world, uh-huh. to you know, be your own. And... Um, it was a different, a different way of response. And the people who were of Merlin's dragon earth energy, um, they, they could see that sense of change. They knew that something was different. I think today we're living in that same kind of era of change. We know that something is different. We know that something new is emerging. We don't know what it is yet. We're standing at a crossroads and the ego within us is afraid to take the step because it could lead a step upward or it could propel us off a cliff. You know, we just don't know yet which way it's going to go. And yeah, there's that's, a lot that's of fear. What, that, that's what I was going to mention, too, that the, the fear is sometimes 
not letting your ego get out of control. Somebody, somebody, somebody said to me once, you know, you seem to be stand, standing in place. What are you afraid of? And, mm. you know, they said, are you afraid of failure? I said, no, I'm not afraid of failure. I'm afraid of success. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's sort of like yeah. some, sometimes when you get to be successful, you do lose your footing for a time. Yes. And and, yeah. and so, you know, it, it, it isn't some, – sometimes ego holds you back from success as, as well as failure. So it's, it's yeah. kind of a, a coin toss-up, and sometimes success can lead to failure immediately. So, you know, it's, 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 it's hard to read sometimes. Yeah, how many successful uh, actors and actresses, for instance, or musicians or whatever, they they w- try and try and try to get successful, and then as soon as they get successful, boom, their egos bring them down. Uh, they just uh-huh. they they lose everything, and it's a it's a terrible thing. I've seen it happen. Uh, I haven't been in a, a Christian church for fifteen years, but I still watch it from afar. And uh, uh-huh. I'm just amazed at the number of of Christian pastors who I'm seeing on the television and and everything else standing up in their pulpits, and I, I listen to them talk, and I say, what are they talking about? What would happen if the Jesus who they are so fond of quoting were to come back and listen to them talk like this? They're absolutely <laughs> convinced uh, that uh, Jesus would be all on their side, 100%. I don't think so. <laughs> I think... I, I, I think that religious um, culture that enveloped us for so long and that gave us so much wonderful music and so many beautiful buildings and so much great tradition and, and so much great mythology, I, I think like Merlin of old, it's starting to, to, to cave. And maybe Merlin is coming out of, his, out of his crystal cave. Maybe he's starting to come out. I'm seeing a lot of people talk more, for instance, about spirituality than about uh, religion. And I can really uh, identify with that. I understand because religion and dogma have come to mean fences and gates and rules and doors and all that kind of stuff. Whereas spirituality is much, much more open and, and, and I'm much more comfortable with that word nowadays than I am with religion. Yeah, religion seems to isolate and and separate, yeah. and and you know, spirituality is is more of a embracing of of a concept that that everybody has and does and can do in their own way at their own time and in their own manner, yeah. and yeah. it's it's uh, and because when you stop to think, every spirit has had different experiences in different incarnations Uh here on the earth plane. So we all draw from a different frame of reference, so to speak. Yes, yeah, that's right. So so that what feels right for one doesn't feel right for another. It doesn't make it wrong. It's just not right for them, that's all. And, you know, everybody searches and finds their own way. But, But in organized religion, you are judged by the book and are you following the laws and, and all of that. And it's, it, it, and don't get yeah, me wrong. It, I think, you know, it, it organized religion for some people is where they belong. 
It's where they're comfortable. It's where they're safe. It's where they belong. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's sort of like everybody, it's different strokes for different folks. Yeah. um, It, it, it can be, uh, it, it, it can get to us because it's not just a matter of religion too. I'm finding, you know, religion has divided up into denominations and liberals and conservatives and evangelicals and Catholics and Methodists and Methodists, (laughs) all, all those different denominations. But the same thing goes on in terms of the political spectrum. Uh, there are certain people who want to know if you're sound and if you may agree with them on one thing and you have to, you disagree with them on something else, they kick you out of the club, you know, that kind of thing. Uh-huh. I, I, I well remember the days living up in Massachusetts when I did. It wasn't that long ago when uh, uh, Tip O'Neill, our, the Speaker of the House, you know, our uh, our flaming liberal uh, would sit down in a room with uh, uh, Ronald Reagan, the arch conservative, and they they didn't agree on anything political, but they could kick back and put their feet up on the desk and drink a beer and tell Irish stories to each other. And they respected each other, even though they didn't agree with each other. uh, Nowadays, they, they wouldn't be allowed to do that. They would be criticized. They would be kicked out of their club. Sad to say, I've seen the same thing in in uh, in scientific circles and or in academic circles. If you don't agree with my particular take on uh, what this particular archaeological find means, then you're out of here. Um, <laughs> I got a, I got a real great example of this a couple of summers ago. I went on a, a personal field trip because I was involved in studying uh, the mound culture up and down the Mississippi River. Uh-huh. And uh, I, I wanted to go down uh, where it all began, so I, I went down in Louisiana, and I began at, at Watkins Break. And uh, I, I went to some of the places down there, and one place I especially wanted to to spend some time. So I got there uh, the night before. I got a motel room, and next morning I was in that museum first thing in the morning. I was the only one there. And uh, Graham Hancock's book, uh, America Before, had just come out. And in this book, uh, Graham Hancock championed the idea that there could very possibly be evidence of humans off the coast of California 135,000 years ago, which obviously is uh, absolutely verboten to anybody who believes in Clovis first and the <laughs> fact that the first Americans just got here 16,000 years ago. Well, I was I was in there, and, and the, the archaeologist who ran the place uh, came in. He saw me there, and he came over to me. He seemed like a nice, nice young fellow, probably right out of school. And uh, I didn't want to insult him or anything like that. I mean, I was in his home, you know. Uh-huh. So uh, I, I, I talked to him, and I had to ask him a couple of little questions. And just to make conversation, I said, uh, "Boy, you must be getting a lot of people here now that Graham Hancock's book just came out, um, America Before." Oh, he huffed himself up and lifted back his shoulders, and he said, I have never read one of Graham Hancock's books. And I said, (laughs) "Uh, oh, uh, why not? And then he gave me the scientific principle, because Graham Hancock is an idiot. (laughs) (laughs) And me... Me being the smart mouth that I am, say, oh, I hadn't considered that fact. You know, that's all I said. But then somebody came in and the guy left me and I never saw him again all day. 
but that kind of uh, closed mindedness, you know, the idea of this, I don't, I don't agree with what I have heard of Graham Hancock. So therefore he's an idiot, you know, I'm not going to let him into my club. Oh, it, it seems like every single, uh, you know, in, in every single earthly organization is just becoming polarized and split like yeah. that. Just like, Merlin could not exist in Arthur's world. Uh, the Christians simply would not allow it. And so paganism went the way of all things. But I take great comfort in the fact that I believe Merlin is somewhere in a cave yet. <laughs> Metaphorically. Well, you know, I, anyway. I, I would tend to, to think that you're right. Because more and more and more I find myself using the term magic. Now, yeah, um, yeah. And and things happen for me sometimes magically. Are there scientific yeah. or whatever explanations for it? Sure, but but there are. There's also a spiritual explanation for it, and I prefer the spiritual explanation. And yeah. I know people are trying so hard to bring science and spirituality together, and I just think they're two different spectrums, and they may coexist peacefully but i do not believe they are connected that's just me i think they're yeah they're they're probably both looking for uh some great truths that they have in common who are we where do we come from why are we here but you're right they live on uh, they're existing on parallel highways and why not you know what's wrong with that um i think we can I i think we can borrow from each other um what you know i i gotta a kick out of thing hearing you say the word magic. Um, one of the big sellers from a couple of years ago was Dean Radin's book called Real Magic. And here's Dean uh-huh. Radin, who's involved with the uh, Institute of Noetic Studies out in California, uh, a, a scientist, 100% of the way. Uh, and everything he does is peer-reviewed and, and scientific principles. But he's studying things like remote viewing and out-of-body experience and near-death experience <laughs> and things like that. And yet when it came to talk, all, I mean, it's, it's a very scientifically grounded book. And yet when he uh, turned it into the publisher, the publisher said, Real Magic. That was the title that they used. I think it's wonderful. Uh, Dean, Dean is is... is he he has done some 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 great work. He he and I have uh, corresponded in the past about some questions I had, and I love it because uh, I heard he played the fiddle. He was a concert. He was trained as a concert violinist, but I heard he also played bluegrass fiddle. And I said uh, someday I'd love to meet you in person, Dean. I'll bring my guitar and you bring your fiddle. And he said, Well, I don't play very much anymore, but in my heart, he said, I can play like the wind. <laughs> <laughs> I do know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think I think too that that I you know I do when you think of places like Gobekli Gobekli Tepe and you know that that obviously are so much older than than the last flood and all of that 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 go back in time that that I keep I keep wanting to know what happened before the last mass extinction what what yeah. what was it that what cultures were here what societies were here what belief systems were here because i do believe yeah. we started all over again whatever thousand years ago About 9000 10000 whatever yeah, it is 11, 
Yeah, they say yeah. You know, at the end of the last ice age, 11,800 years ago, uh, all of a sudden, all this stuff just came up almost overnight, you know, uh, without any practice time, so to speak. I, I think it had to be inherited from an earlier culture. I think you're absolutely right. But yeah, what yeah, kind of people were they? Well, yeah, that, that's where yeah, my well, fascination we, is. I mean, they, they we, did a study we, we some, and, we, someplace. Well, they did a, they did a study someplace on um, our DNA and yes. the fact that our DNA has has mutated every you know every so many thousand years it mutates to adjust to the environment or whatever, but they took it back as to when it was the original DNA and they found that it was much older than the Earth. Yeah. So. Yeah. Always, Obviously. always it goes back goes back in time, doesn't it? <laughs> Never. Yeah. Always goes older and older every time. Yeah, that's amazing. Just amazing. Yeah. So, so that you know, yeah. we did come from somewhere else, but you know, where and when is is a whole other. It's a whole other book someday. <laughs> but so, <laughs> so so you so so Merlin is back in his cave, and then. Robin Hood appears. Yeah, yeah I, I wrote Robin Hood because um, I, I asked ask myself the question, how do people live when they are really Merlins at heart, but Arthurs according to their culture and the civilization that they're living in? How do you live in a civilization like that? And you might ask the same question, how does a person with spiritual inclinations today Go about living in a materialistic world that doesn't care about the spirit. Um, how does a person who is always thinking about the big questions of life uh, live in a world where everybody else is worried about trying to remember their passwords on their latest gizmo? You know that kind of thing. And, <laughs> yeah. it, and it, it, it it occurred to me that the, the key to that is found in uh, the book and in, in, in the story of Robin Hood. Uh, here is Robin. He's uh, born and raised in the city and he was you know uh, according to some of the stories he he was uh you know actually destined to be royalty you know princely line but uh he wasn't like everybody else and because he threatened the sheriff of nottingham uh, he was kicked out and had to go live in the woods uh and became a man of the woods and so here he was living in the woods but surrounded by this materialistic narcissistic uh, society that was run by the Sheriff of Nottingham and by Prince John, who was trying to usurp his his brother on the throne. How did Robin Hood survive in that kind of an environment is the same kind of question that we ask. How do we live when we're interested in spiritual things but living in a material, trapped in a material world? And it occurred to me that how Robin did it was not only by being true to himself, but by surrounding himself with a group of light minded people, the Merry Men and Maid Marian, uh-huh. all of whom had specific talents and specific abilities that might not have enabled them to live on their own, but when they got together and shared their abilities, uh, they were a force that was simply unstoppable. 
and this is the story of of, of Robin. You have uh, uh, gifted people who, in different ways, like much the Miller's son was the baker, and and they had uh, Alan and Dale, who was the, the the musician, and they had Little John, who was the strength of the the, the warrior, so to speak, um, and they had all of these different people, and they all had these different gifts. So from the story of Robin Hood, uh, I think probably our method, our, our way of living, is to do exactly what you're doing with your program. Uh, you're reaching out and surrounding yourself and surrounding all of us who listen with the idea that we are not alone. We are a, a, a group of merry men <laughs> and women, yeah. so to speak, just like, just like Robin had. And we all have different uh, gifts. We all have different abilities. And yet we're all able to uh, work together to live a life uh, of, of the spirit while surrounded with a very, very materialistic culture. It's not easy, that's for sure. And the materialistic culture is always looking to stamp us out. But uh, Robin Hood and his men were very good at, at borrowing from the rich and giving to the poor. You know, they're borrowing whatever they could or taking whatever they, they, they could from this society, but then distributing it to the poor who needed it. In the same way, I think we can reach out and grab all of these great spiritual treasures and then share them with other people who might not have any other way of, of, of knowing about them. I think it's a, an extremely important task that we're doing it right now. You and I and, well, that's, and, and Mark. That's, that's, why, Mark. That's, why, that's why the show is called Nightlight. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, people thought it was a silly title, but it, it's meant to be a light in the darkness. You know, here's a spark. Ah, exactly. Ignite it within yourself. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and, 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 and it, I, I think it's more important than ever nowadays. Uh, sometimes, especially living where I live, I live literally out in the woods, um, and I'm I'm down here surrounded by the woods, and sometimes days go by when I don't see or hear anybody. And uh, in in some ways, I I love it because it, it, it's like living inside of a meditation, 24 hours a day, and it mm-hmm. turns you inward, and it, it, it's deliberate. I when I retired from the ministry, I deliberately wanted to get out of the world and become a kind of a hermit for a while i expected to do it for one year that was 15 years ago <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i live i live out here i live out here in the woods and have all these uninterrupted time for thinking and um every once in a while uh, maybe once or twice a week the telephone will ring and it'll startle me what's that you know <laughs> all that kind of thing so uh, but but it's, uh, there's a there's a dark side to that too. You tend to uh, after a while you you tend to bl- hopefully it doesn't grab you, but you you tend to worry that well maybe I'm all alone. Maybe there's nobody else who thinks the way I do. And then I get on the horn with someone like you and and Mark and talking to other people and uh, realize no there are a bunch of us out there. There's a bunch of merry men out there in the <laughs> woods, you know. And we all have our different gifts. We all have to do our different things, but it is possible to uh carry that spirituality and that that in, into a very materialistic world. Yeah, and and I think that it's it's a challenge, but it's it's exciting. Oh yeah. And and yeah. you know, I keep um you know, I have 
I have tech people that help me with with the tech that I can't do, and every now and then they say, "Oh, you could make money with this and mark that, market that." And I and I I keep saying, "You don't understand. Spirituality for me <laughs> is free." Yeah. And and yeah. if I can put out information, you know, if I write a book, yeah, pay for it. But yeah. but you know, the the radio show has never, will never, as far as I know you know, at, at least I hope, um, have advertisers because yeah. I don't want to, well, you know, be a, be a shill for somebody else. No, it's, yeah, yeah. we're putting information out there and, and lots of times it's conflictatory, but it's also, it's, it's a possibility and take a little here and a little there and make something that's perfect for you. I mean, it's, I'm not, I'm yeah. not, saying everything is exactly what I believe in, but hey, there's a possibility that there's some very, you know, great worth here, you know, and, and yeah. take a look and if you don't like it then change the channel. <laughs> it's really that easy. <laughs> I know, the, the love the love of money is the root of evil, right? Yeah, I I, I think you're absolutely true. I it, it it sometimes bothers me to see how that kind of um, thinking that you're trying to keep on the outside, how that often uh, seeps its way into the spiritual life. Um, I really believe in, in the idea of manifesting, uh, manifesting our life and manifesting a certain uh, things that we need in this life. But there are times mm-hmm. when this whole idea of mani- manifestation turns into this, uh, I want this and I want that and uh, I want a new car, and if I don't, I, I can manifest it. And if I don't do it, I'm not spiritual, and all this kind of thing. Oh, I just, uh, it, it bothers me. How it, it's so easy to have these negative, negative concepts seep into a world that is magical and beautiful. It, it is, and I served in the pulpit for five years, and um, <clears throat> I was, I was part of a rotating ministry in a spiritualist church, and. Um, they always knew that if I was in the pulpit that I would forget to take collection and the ushers would just stand by the door and hope as people were leaving. <laughs> because to me, uh, you know, it, it, you know, did I get paid to do it? Yes. But, but you know, as far as, you know, pausing so that I could, you know, jingle coins in people's pockets did yeah, not appeal to me at all. So I just didn't do it. And you yeah, know, they kept saying, I, I, I you, used to, you forgot again. <laughs> <laughs> I used to face the same problem uh, when I was at a, a small church that was, you know, kind of struggling to keep on. We were doing our own thing. But it got to me where I, I just didn't like taking up an offering, you know. Uh, and, and, I, and so I, I said, listen, let's not do it. Let's just put a box in the back of the church. And uh, yeah. people can, you know, put in money if they want, and you know, no one will be watching them, and you know, no one will check, and all this kind of stuff. And I tried it for about six months, and I almost got kicked out of the church because the revenue stream went down so fast and so far. <laughs> people weren't people weren't supporting it, and uh, so it, it was it was a, a experiment that I tried. Unfortunately, I couldn't make it last. But I know just what you mean. Uh, it, it, it is a shame, isn't it? That the whole idea of the love of money, and uh, it really is the root of all evil. 
Well, that's why the show is so cool because there is no collection, there is no advertising. Yeah. You know, don't don't buy buy this mustache wax or don't buy this beer or whatever. And yeah. you know, yeah. I, I mean, yes, I have authors on that have written books, and certainly. The purpose is to talk about the book and, and the material in the book, and if people want to buy them, they can go buy them on Amazon or wherever. But, you know, um, I'm not pitching to sell them. I'm, I've read them, and I yeah. can talk intelligently, hopefully, on, on the subjects that are covered. And, you know, it's, it's, it's sort of like we are in such a material world, and when eggs are going for $9 a dozen, it, yeah, it makes yeah. you want to get a chicken coop in the backyard. Um, <laughs> right. I, I mean, there yeah. there are actually there are there are you can actually rent a chicken coop and chickens, and they'll deliver the coop and the chickens to you. To you, you just have to be able to have a you know a, a fixed um, you know it, you have to be able to have sure. the chicken coop in your pro, on your property, and yeah. um, mm-hmm. I, I I we. I'm in a condominium, and there are only 14 of us. And I have, cert- I have absolutely suggested that we get chicken coops. Uh huh. Because yeah. be, you know, you but but nope they they want it to be park like. They don't want to yeah. have cheap eggs. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, you know, it, like, uh, and the, and it's it's funny too, in that uh, even as an author. Uh, books are considered successful not by their content, but by how many copies sell. And authors are judged on how good they are by what their sales are like. Uh, an author who has a bestseller on the New York Times list uh, is considered to be a great author. And if you just have a book that sells a couple hundred copies, well, you must not be a good author. Uh, it, it's it's really a shame. And, and it's not just true in the field of writing, but it's, it's true in the... Uh, the field of the arts, for instance, I've heard some terrific, wonderful musicians who never had that big break. I've met some fantastic actors who are acting in community theaters, but they're waiting tables because they haven't got the uh, the big thing that makes a Meryl Streep out of them or something like that, you know. And this whole idea of how much income we generate is going to be the uh, the the measure of how good you are in your field, that's a shame. Well, isn't, that's really isn't a shame. that what happens in academia too? It's publisher parish. Oh yes, yes, absolutely, absolutely. I've even had some publishers tell me that uh, uh, that they really enjoy doing that. They don't want to have to pay their authors. The authors are just so anxious to get their books out in print that they'll do it for nothing. And, uh, you know, spend sometimes years of their life writing the book that some publisher will will finally publish. And the publisher will make some money, but very rarely will the uh, the author ever make any money. Yeah, it's, it's, well, a, you know, it's, a, it's a sad thing. Well, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I do look at it. Um, I've done some publishing, too. And, and it's like I tell people, you don't get rich on publishing. You just don't. But but you get it. You get a chance to get your message out there if you do podcasts or if you do conventions or if you do whatever. Yeah. But you know. Yeah. So what's important to you to get? Yeah. For me, getting something published means it lives forever, which means that yeah. you know in three hundred years somebody can pick up a piece of my work someplace, 
and some of my wisdom has gone forward in time. And that's that's my intent. I love the the metaphor of that because symbolically uh, your work is now going up into the cloud. I love that. And anybody can draw on it from the cloud. What a wonderful metaphor that is. Well, and not yeah. only that, I got I worried at at one time, you know, I sometimes you have random thoughts that you that catch you and you 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 sort of perseverate on and it was like, okay, so if there's a mass destruction time frame and and the earth is wiped clean again like one of those those etch yeah. sketches yeah. so that so that you know everything goes yeah. back to whatever the the only thing that i can see in this society that will survive is mount rushmore and, wow. and maybe not even that's mount an rushmore interesting thought. Yeah. so that's so, a, that's a fascinating thought yeah my my concern was what happens to how do we how do we preserve our society, and then I realized that every podcast we do is an electronic wave that goes out into the universe, and yes. it is preserved as that wave forever, so yeah. that at some point in time, these waves, these podcasts that we do, all of us, um, can be will will be able to be picked up by somebody, something, somewhere. And our history will be preserved. Unfortunately, some yeah. of the current music is not worth preserving, in my opinion. But <laughs> but the podcasts and the radio show, anything that's on on waves electronically, is will live forever out there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so Carl Sagan, yeah, Carl Sagan captured that so beautifully um, in his book um, uh, Contact. Uh, he has those people way out there in the universe who discover that there's life on Earth because of the radio waves that come to them. And the first radio waves that were broadcast came from the Olympics that were held in Nazi Germany. And here's Hitler oh, wow. and and all of that bad stuff that was going on and all of that ego run amok and everything else. And yet those people way out there in, this, in space uh, listened to it and they realized there was hope here, not because of the message of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis, but because of the music in the background. It was Beethoven. And they thought uh-huh. that any culture, any culture that could come up with music like that is hopeful. <laughs> I think that's a, that was a wonderful part of the book that really didn't come out into the, in the movie as well as it should have, I think. Well, I think the fact that, that what we do today in this podcast is 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 electronically preserved and you know not just on the internet but but beyond the internet it's it's out there and so that so that uh well physically nothing will be left of our society today in 500 a thousand years I mean, yeah. my condo sure as heck isn't going to stand like the you know the pyramids to do, and yeah. Yeah. and I don't know that the pyramids will stand that much longer. And if it's a if it's a the last couple of mass destructions have been um, comet hits, so depending on yeah. where it hits, um, some of our yeah. our major structures are, are going to be gone, and certainly yeah. Dubai will be wiped out. You know, even though they have the most beautiful structures going up that you you can imagine 
but but they'll yep. be wiped out. Uh, the cathedrals, the the you know the the Templars, you know, and and the Crusaders, and you know, with the with the armed buttresses and all of that, they'll be gone. So, yep. what what will be left of our culture, or or, yep. or our species, and. Truly, the only thing I can think of is Mount Rushmore, and it depends on where the comet hits, whether or not they'll st- they'll survive. Yeah, yeah. It's it, we have those those strange echoes from the past. Um, we have the echoes in story, of course, in mythology that's passed down. And uh-huh. if there are any survivors, perhaps some of that will be able to pass down. But the other is what I like to call the echoes in stone. Uh, these strange structures that were built, obviously, a very, very long time ago, much farther ago than most people want to want to admit, which are just kind of, uh, oh, you might call them radio signals from a failed culture. Uh, and I sometimes wonder when we're looking at the pyramids or when we're looking at Gobekli Tepe or Karahan Tepe, um, when we look at the ancient structures that really defy time, the Sphinx and places like that, I, I wonder if we're asking the wrong questions. We're we're wondering how they did it and when they did it, and maybe we should be asking why they did it. Well, uh, maybe you know, those kinds of at, questions. Yeah. If you look at Scarabray, if you look at the stone structure, the stone chambers that are here in this country, yeah. all up and down the East Coast, they're mostly granite. Sure. Granite has a great deal of crystal in it. I think they're storage chambers. For messages from afar. Yeah, I don't. I don't doubt it. Um, we we live on an ancient stone quarry. Uh, I came here. I didn't realize the land was calling me when I came here 15 years ago, and there was granite rocks all over the place. And since then, uh, I've discovered oh, dozens and dozens of artifacts and stone heads, uh, stone arrow points, and and uh, hoes and various artifacts and tools implements and uh, even a place where there was these these great piles of stone that are all through the woods uh, one of them i since discovered through dowsing was uh, a hawk effigy that was built up in stone right here on our property and of course you can't really see it the outlines anymore because not only is it covered over with a lot of uh, leaves and that kind of thing i've cleared some of it out but uh, also the fact that uh, you know the early settlers came in here and they saw this scraping pile of rocks. Oh, that'll that'd be great. I'll use that to build my my fence or my cellar hole or whatever. But oh, yeah. I was curious. I was curious as as to what these artifacts really meant. And so I got a a, a friend of mine who is a, uh, a surveyor, and he has all the high tech gizmos and everything else. And I took him around to all of these. Uh, different piles of rocks that are out in the woods. Sometimes they're a mile, mile apart, but they were all found on the tops of ridges that now is covered with trees. But back when these stone piles were built originally, it was just a savanna, a grassland. You could see them all, you know, so to speak. Uh-huh. And he plotted, he plotted them all out with his um, high-tech gizmos. And then we went back to his office and he printed them out uh, according to the GPS locations on a piece of paper when I saw that a piece of paper, I was I was amazed uh, because it looked so familiar. Every year at this time of year, uh, especially during uh, the solstice, I mean in in in, in December, 
uh, you can look up in the sky and you can see what we call the Northern Cross. Uh, it's the central backbone, so to speak, of Cygnus the Swan. And you can see the, uh, the, the stars that make up this Northern Cross that hang right overhead uh, on the night of the winter solstice. Sometimes they call it the Christmas cross for that reason. Uh-huh. So uh, I was curious as to how close they were. So I, I adjusted the mess for size and superimposed one over the other and discovered that they were exact. At some point in the distant past, and I think it was thousands of years ago, a group of people here saw at the time of the equinox uh, the, the winter equinox, uh, I mean the winter solstice, rather, they saw those particular uh, um, stars, which even then they associated with Cygnus the Swan, and they took those stars and they superimposed them on the Earth, on these things. I don't know how they did it, I don't know, but I can just see them on the night of the uh, the winter solstice. I can see them lighting these fires on the hilltops that mimic exactly the position of the stars over their head of Cygnus the Swan. And they literally brought heaven to earth. And uh, here on earth, they were building the stars that would mimic the stars in the heaven. As above, so below. Or, to quote the famous Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same thing. They were aware of this. And they may not have left very much except in terms of an artifact or a spear point or an arrowhead or a hoe or a pick of some kind. But somehow just those stone piles that they left managed to survive whatever has happened to this area, including industrialization and the cotton and growing here in the south and all that kind of thing. They managed to survive all of that. And they still speak from the past to people who were willing to listen. Uh, there's one place that I call the shaman circle where I will have my ashes buried. And I go and I sit there uh, sometimes during the day or morning and evening, or whatever. I, had, I built a little bench and I just sit there in the commune with those who came here in the past. And I said, I don't know exactly what your message to me is yet, but I'm working on it. I'm, get, I'm trying to get it. <laughs> they, were, they were trying to communicate something that lasted outlasted them there is a message there and it seems like almost every year i get a little closer to understanding exactly what they were talking about did did you ever consider that you might be talking to your past oh yeah very bad yeah very much so matter of fact my spirit guide uh who i call subuko why i don't know it was just a name that popped into my head when i first met him when i was dowsing uh i'm sure that uh, the first stone worker who came here to this spot of ground uh, was a previous incarnation of me. He is that part of me that uh, is left behind on the other side of the veil when I was reincarnated into this life. And I have no question that when I die and my ashes are placed there, uh, I will I will either take his place or join with him or un- become one with him in one way or another. We will be reunited and uh, it will, I, I will do for future generations what he has done for me. That's, that's incidentally what, the whole that's, story. That, that's the, what the story, I call the, the, the book. Yeah. The, the book that Go I'm ahead. writing right now called Sabuco and Me tells this story. It'll probably, oh, come out in a couple of months. That's what I call 
the light body energy and yeah. Yeah. in in my in my <clears throat> in my belief system um the light body energy is is an etheric replica of the physical body that you're in right now and at the moment yeah. of yeah. death the light body energy uh and and the energy in the physical body re- reconnect and you know the 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 symbology of the the hands put together in prayer is yeah, symbolic yeah. of the reuniting of the physical of of the of that which has been on the earth plane with the etheric body the light body energy that is that is always yeah. there watching us yeah yeah i i fully agree with that um i I've, I've developed a kind of a oh a you know, I'm kind of a left brain guy all my life, and so I always have to systematize everything. But I've developed a, a system when people say, you know, how did we get here or what are we? I've developed something that works for me that I like to call a slice of reality. I'm certainly not saying it happens exactly like this or this is the truth, but it, it works for me and maybe it'll help other people out there. But if you picture a, a, oh, a record, for instance, an old vinyl record going round and round and round and round, um, the farther out you go toward the rim, the faster it travels and the farther it travels. Well, I like to think that there is a still small point in the middle of that circle that is perfect stillness. I like to call it the source. Um, in yeah. previous, in, uh, earlier in my life, I might have called it God, but God is a word with so much baggage that people have different, so many ideas. I hate to use the word God because when I say God, people assume I'm talking about their definition of God when I may have a quite a different one. So I don't call yeah. it the, the source. Any, I don't call it God anymore. I call it the source. And uh, there at the source is perfect stillness and perfect unity, uh, perfect oneness, so to speak. And it's uh, there, but there is one thing you can't experience there. The thing you can't experience in perfect unity is the idea of individuality, of ego. Uh, uh-huh. You can't experience that because everything is one. So if the source is going to experiment and learn what individuality is all about, um, energy in that source. And I think each one of us, we can just picture ourselves as a little ball of energy or something like that, uh, has to make what I think is a courageous decision, and that's to leave the unity and the perfection of the source and to move out from the source. And I think there's a, a, a I, I like to picture three different dimensions that we come through. The first dimension is what I call consciousness. Um, uh, Albert Einstein and Stephen Hawking call this the mind of God. That's what they were seeking. Consciousness is not quite the source. It's a little heavier, a little thicker, a little slower, perhaps. But it is um, the, the awareness that there is something else outside of that unity. Um, and it's that that dimension of consciousness which I think undergirds the whole world. I don't think consciousness uh, uh, comes forth from the human brain. I think the human brain is a receptor, kind of like a radio, so to speak. But consciousness, I think, undergirds everything. But that's not far enough. You aren't really an individual. You're just aware of, uh, conscious of what an individual can be. To move out of consciousness, you have to go through the first field, which I like to call the Akashic field. It's the field of possibility and possible uh, and, and potentiality. Um, it, 
Akasha comes from the ancient Hindu Sanskrit, which is a wonderful spiritual language. And there was where all possibilities exist. Uh, Socrates talked about this field. Uh, he talked about the difference between a horse and horseness. <laughs> he said, a horseness <laughs> is eternal. Uh, there's always horseness out there. A horse is simply a physical manifestation of horseness. Horses come and go, but horseness lasts forever. That's out of the Akashic <laughs> field. But when we pass through the Akashic field, I think then is when we enter this, uh, I like to say, well, the scientists say it's newly discovered quantum reality. Uh, we like to say we just discovered the quantum reality only about 100 years ago, but I think it's the very same thing that Oh, dowsers and mystics and shaman and women have been, you know, exploring intuitively for thousands of years. But there in quantum reality, you might want to call it thoughts and uh, intuitions. There in the field of quantum reality exists pure energy. Now, how does that energy get out here? It passes through the next field, which I think is the newly discovered Higgs field. When scientists talk about the Higgs field, they talk about a field uh, that where energy is slowed down and becomes matter. Uh, in um, Here in America, we tend to use the word, when we talk about the Higgs field, scientists used to say it, it worked kind of like molasses. You know, things slow down when they get into it. Over in England, they used to call it treacle. I'm not even sure what treacle is, but I'm sure it's the same kind of idea. But when energy passes through the Higgs field, it takes on mass. Uh, it becomes matter. Einstein gave us the mathematical formula when he said E equals MC square. Uh, energy is the same thing or equals uh, mass times the speed of light squared. So when we that energy which began in the source moved through the dimension of consciousness, then passed through the Akashic field into quantum reality, and then the energy from quantum reality passes through the Higgs field. It comes out here into where we live. I call it the perception realm or uh, material reality manifested. We are nothing but uh, energy, which is taken on mass. And out here, we understand for the first time what real individuality is. And our purpose for doing all that is to experience everything that we experience in our life. And when this life is over, the individual, the I, the ego, uh, dies, so to speak, and is buried with this, one, one way or another, with this material body, and it decomposes. But all of the experiences that we gathered the, in, in this wonderful school of our perception realm, all of that we take with us back to the source. In other words, we are helping the source grow. We are the source but we are also envoys of the source. Or you might say we are envoys of God in the same way that we are divine ourselves, God. And we bring that, uh-huh. that experience with us. Now, I, you know, this could be just an academic exercise on my part, except I find it very comforting when things are going wrong, when I'm discouraged, <laughs> when I'm hearing all the bad news, when I'm hearing all of that stuff. I just simply have to remind myself, well, you know what? In a world of duality, where there is up and down and materially manifested and there is right and left and you know black and white and all that kind of stuff, there is also good and evil. And we're going to experience it all. And no matter what's happening to me out here as an individual, I know it won't last forever. 
And when I die and take this experience back with me, I will have the blessed privilege of adding to the source, of adding to God, so to speak. And uh, that that gives me great hope. Uh, I'm an envoy of the eternal, and I am eternal. I'm not only a... I'm separate from the eternal while I'm out here, but this won't last forever. And when it's gone, I'll return to the eternal again. But carrying all this wonderful experience, I think these experiences that we carry with us are what uh, some people like to refer to as the Akashic Record. Uh, We carry these experiences and they are eternal. Just like your broadcast that goes out into the universe, every experience we have goes into the field of Akasha and it's stored there. Scientists even have mathematical formulas that tell us you can't lose energy. You can't lose information. It's somewhere. It's just a matter of finding it. And I, it, I don't know. To, to me, it, it gives me a kind of a, a hope about what life is, and it, it makes it possible to go through the difficult times. Well, I, I look upon us as seeds of the source. Uh, as, as what of the source? Seeds. Of the source. Oh, I love. Oh, I love that. That's a wonderful way of putting it. I mean, if yeah. you look at uh, the best representation I can think of, is the sunflower. The sunflower yes. grows. Oh, perfect. It, it follows the sun, and then at some point in time, as it begins to dim, it sends out its seeds to create new sources in new places. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. I love that image. Yeah, following the light. Yeah, I, that's, I just, that's really great. I mean, and, it, and it, when you, you know, stop to think, when you stop to think about it, you know, our that which makes us unique is the fact that we carry a seed of the source within us. Yeah. And 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 so that so that you know we are envoys, we are um, representations. You know, we we are in many ways. The, the source experiencing everything that each of us yeah. experience. Yeah. And, oh, you know, I'm so, I'm so glad you said that because <laughs> it also leads us right into the final book of the trilogy, uh, yes. Little Snow White. When you're talking about the seeds of the source, uh, it allows us, you know, thinking of, of ourselves like that, it allows us to live in a manifest world with a lot of, uh, bad stuff happening as well as good stuff, but allows us to recapture and reclaim and hold on to that sense of innocence, which is why I called Snow White uh, ego and innocence. Uh, I think uh-huh. it's the beautiful picture of that uh, the evil queen is, as I call her queen ego, um, you know, she is totally wrapped up in herself. She just, you oh, know, yeah. she looks in her mirror. She looks in her mirror. Uh, just like we look into our computers and she says, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Just like we open up our day by looking at our computers and saying, oh, computer, computer on my desk, who got more hits last night than all the rest? You know, that kind of thing. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we look into the computer and, and, and we, we, we want to reaffirm our importance you know who's the fairest of them all are people listening to me are people paying attention or people reading my stuff and all this kind of thing and that's queen ego and uh snow white is just the opposite she's living out in the world she's innocence personas 
personified. And the world hates it. Queen ego hates innocence. Uh, in the in the same way, the manifested world does not like it when people look at innocence. Just look at the movie Forrest Gump, for instance. You know, the innocent oh, yeah. who goes through life not wanting to do anything, but he <laughs> changes history all the time. He sees it all the time. And uh, that that kind of thing in, in, in Snow White is, is, I think, so beautiful. And eventually it appears in the story of Little Snow White. I call it a roadmap for our time because I think the story of Snow White tells us how to live in this world and how to retain our innocence. And ego is always going to try to poison the apple, you know, and give it to us. And there comes times, certainly enough, when we... Uh, eat the apple, just like Snow White ate the poisoned apple. And if that doesn't have uh, New Testament or Old Testament ramifications, I don't know what does. And she seems <laughs> yeah, she seems to drop yeah she seems to drop off you know in, into into death. But she doesn't die. We can't die. All she does is sleep, and she is awakened from that sleep by a wonderful thing. And here is where I think Walt Disney really did us wrong. In the Walt Disney movie that so many people are familiar with, uh, Snow White sleeps the sleep of death, and she's put in this fancy coffin. And it may be a beautiful gold glass-filled coffin, but she's still dead, according to the world, until, according to Walt Disney's version, the, the, the prince comes and gives her the kiss and brings her back to life. That's not what happened in the original Snow White story. In the original story, She's in the coffin. She's sleeping the sleep of death. And the seven dwarves are taking her off. And they trip. And she comes in contact with the earth, with earth energy. In other words, she's restored to the Merlin religion, the Merlin spirituality. She's restored. Uh And and it's in contact with earth energy that she comes back to life. And only then does she marry the prince. So it it becomes the third in this trilogy where um, royalty always comes from outside. That represents, I think, our our spiritual gurus and our angelic angels. They always come from outside. In the story of of Merlin, uh, of course, uh, he's in contact with all kinds of spirits. In terms of uh, uh, of, uh, Robin Hood, the, you know, Prince... Uh, uh, King Richard comes back and he's the royalty who marries in effect Robin the man of the woods and made Marion the woman of the town so he in effect marries the two spiritualities and in Snow White it's the prince who always comes from outside but they don't come and they don't make their appearance until after we've solved the problem, after we've gone through it, uh, Merlin theoretically dies, as does Arthur, but Merlin is carried off to Avalon. Uh, and uh, Robin Hood, we get the idea, eventually eventually he dies, and of course, little Snow White comes back to life again, just like Robin, his, Robin Hood's um, uh, royalty is restored to him. And uh, in terms of little Snow White, she comes back to life, and the evil princess uh, the evil queen, rather, um, is finally killed in a rather horrible thing, which I won't get into. You'd have to read the book for the whole thing. But she literally dances herself to death. Uh, well, with, yeah, uh, I have found that the the grim the Grimm's fairy tales in their original are really grim. 
Um, oh, yeah, <laughs> very much so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Snow, Snow White is forced to put on a pair of, uh, of, of, of shoes that are made out of metal, and they're red hot, and she dances herself literally to death. Oh, it's a horrible. No, that's the queen, concept. not Snow White. No, no, not Snow White. The Queen, I mean, yeah, yeah, and uh, oh, it's it's a terrible thing. Those those grim fairy tales, like you say, they are very grim. But when you put it all together, I think these three books do tell us that even though we're out here and we feel that there's darkness all around us, um, there is a nightlight available if we look for it. <laughs> we can find light. We can. We can find light in the darkness, and uh, you know it, they tell us. And what really gets me is these are all very old stories, all of them, and which means that whether we take them historically or not, and I think probably most of them are not really history as much as they are metaphor. We might not take them his, uh, historically, but we take them seriously, because it means that a long, long time ago people were dealing with these very same problems that we're talking about right now. A long time ago, people were, they haven't changed. And that means that our ancient ancestors were really smart. They could have come on this show and talked to you about the very same things that we talked about. And we know they well, were thinking that way because we have the stories. Don't you, don't you, don't you think that, that a lot of the, especially the fairy stories, were originally stories to teach morals to children? Yeah, I, I think so. And I, uh, but I think the adults were also talking to themselves at the same time when they when they did it. Uh, they wanted to to train children to live in a, a spiritual kind of life, and so they would tell these stories that were full of magic and full of morals and full of ethics. And our kids today don't get that very much. Uh, our kids uh, have quite a different idea. For instance. In, in in the modern in the modern way of talking about evil is to look at the, say the movie Star Wars, and how do you get rid of evil? You blow it up, right? You blow up the Death Star. <laughs> uh, well, that's what our kids are being raised with—the idea that good can triumph over evil by blowing it up. Oh, a terrible thing to teach kids. Uh, there's much better ways to deal with it, and I think probably we're even seeing some of that come out into the modern. The modern news, when you see young kids uh, who aren't even old enough to fully understand the concept of death, carrying a gun into school and, and shooting their teacher, you know, uh, I don't even think they they had got, ever got past the idea that just because somebody shoots a bad guy on, on, on television, boy, when you do that in real life, it has real ramifications. Uh, and yeah. I think we're seeing that in our youth. And it's it's I think it's terrible. I really do. Well, you know, there's. It, you have to take it back to the home. You have to take it back to the parents. And yeah, it, it, yeah. it's what are the parents teaching the children these days? And basically, I mean, I was horrified by it when I saw um, my first my first grandchild. They 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 would sit him in front of the TV with the. Um, I mean, it was a Disney thing and it was yeah. theoretically you know intelligent you know to get his brain going with the music and everything but yeah. but it wasn't there was no personal connection there there was no you know even if they were sitting no. with him holding him it would have been a, a better lesson but it was a way of yeah. occupying him so they could and and i mean my my grandchildren came out perfectly and and yeah. you know they did a great job with them but but 
when you when you see children having children and not knowing yeah. how to raise them and and certainly i think there's there's recently there's been um gang killings and and one of the people two of the people killed were a 16 year old girl and her 10 month old baby i mean when you're yes. seeing things yeah. like that happening you're beginning to wonder what what is the family unit you know what what are people doing with their children what you know it is just you know life is a teaching experience and you don't yeah. wait to send the kid to school to teach you start teaching as soon as soon as he's out of the womb you know and yeah i mean yeah yeah, yeah you know it it yeah, is horrifying know, yeah, and, and, and the parents who are raising these are younger generation of parents, a lot of them have never heard any of these old stories. They they don't know about Merlin. They don't know about Little Snow White. They've never even heard these stories. They were raised on television, uh, and which was quite a different media. I was thinking uh-huh. the other day that I used to watch you know television when I was a kid. Television first came out. I mean, I'm 77 years old, so, uh, you know, we didn't get our first television until I was older, a little old, more. But I used to watch, you know, shoot 'em up shows. I used to watch Lone Ranger and Gene Autry and Roy Rogers. And That's it occurred okay. to me that I, I, never, I never saw any killing. Uh, they would always shoot the guns out of their hands, you know. <laughs> now, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I never saw anybody actually be killed and, and, and died on, on television. But nowadays, the other night, I was sitting here watching NCIS. I, I'm, I'm, I'm hooked on the NCIS series. And every single episode starts with a murder, sometimes a gruesome murder or something blowing up. I realized that I see more death on television in one night now than I did in the first probably 15 years of my life. And that is oh, sad. Yeah. And and well, when I, I, parents when parents it, who are raised on that raise their own children on that, oh, it gets to be tough. Well, you and I are same generation. I remember the first TV, and I was three yeah. years old, and my my father brought it into the house, and the screen was was not much bigger than a than a um, a tablet. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and and the shows were only you know it wasn't. 24-7 anything, it was, you know, there would be a, a, a signal on it, and then the show would come on, and then five hours later, maybe the news would come on. and Or Kate Smith, you know, Kate Smith was, would sing God Bless America. Or <laughs> oh, jeez, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the, yeah. it wasn't until the 80s that, that they started with 24-7 um, telecasting. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so you, it, know, it's, you know, it, it's... It, 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 and, and it's a terrible thing. I know there's a lot of younger people probably listening to us talk that are probably saying, oh, a couple of old fogies sitting here talking about the good old days. <laughs> you know, I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying, and I don't want to give, imply that television is bad in and of itself. We can do some wonderful things on television. I love to be able to oh, yeah. turn on the television and listen to four orchestras or six orchestras i get to choose play a Brahms symphony you know or something like that or these some of these wonderful uh, shows that i like to watch on on uh, history channel or youtube or any of those things i'm not saying that television is in itself bad i don't think anything like that is really in and of itself bad it's what we do with it 
and that's what I think you and I are talking about right now. Oh, I really yeah. I really oh, think yeah. that. And that and that reminds us of, again of Snow White. She lived in the world but she was innocent. Uh she wasn't perfect and she was wasn't above temptation obviously because she did eat the apple. But she was innocent. In other words, she was uh she wasn't a part of that evil queen who wanted to who wanted to to take on, you know, Snow White didn't want to take on those attributes. And so often, you you look at our political spectrum, so often the the politicians who we respect the most are the most ruthless, the most um, diabolical, so to speak. But I think you you left out a part here with Snow White that I think is important for for people to to realize in, in the story. The evil queen first tempts her with laces and, and laces her dress up to the point where she stops breathing and the dwarves come home and save yeah. her. So she was tempted once. And then the second time she was tempted, it was a comb that she put in her hair, and that yes. zonked her out, and she was rescued. So it was the third time that the, the queen just said, that's it, you know, I'm, I'm off on her. Um, yeah. But But... She was tempted three times, and the only thing that saved her was was reattaching and reconnecting with the earth energy. So that, so that, yeah. um, you know, the the fact that she was tempted says, you know, just because you're tempted doesn't mean it's gonna, you know, it's the end of the world. You know, you're always right. going to be given another chance and another chance and another chance and another chance. No matter how often mm. you screw up, there's always going to be another chance. Isn't it, it isn't it fascinating how univ- yeah yeah isn't it fascinating how universal the idea of the three temptations are you know Jesus being out in the wilderness before he could begin his ministry he had to face down three temptations uh, right. Buddha sitting underneath sitting underneath the bow tree was given three temptations you know they were different temptations but there were three of them and uh, mm-hmm. he finally resisted he finally resisted by uh, when uh, Mara the the uh, Hindu devil, when he says, you know, to him, you know, uh, he tempts him with the great, with the great temptation of of, uh, of ego, and Buddha simply points to the ground and says, "I deserve to be here." He connected with that earth energy into the bow tree. Uh, those uh-huh. the three temptations they come at us again and again and again. The Bible calls them the world, the flesh, and the devil. And uh, in those three temptations, they they come at us over and over again. Uh, we have to be careful because temptation is a very real part of this whole thing. Oh, absolutely. I, I think early on in my career, way, 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 way back, I mean, even before I was doing this stuff, um, I, I found that, that um, my my second husband was a ship captain, and we had money all over the place. I mean, they they get paid phenomenally. I mean, I'm sure they're paid wow. appropriately because of their responsibilities, but he had 1,000-foot container ships that he was piloting. So, um, Oh, boy. But but when that marriage ended, um, I went back to, you know, being poor. And somebody said, you know, you, know, you lost so much. And I said, I lost stuff I hadn't earned. So uh, yeah. it was appropriate. You know, it uh-huh. wasn't fun, but <laughs> in <Yeah>. retrospect, yeah. <laughs> but but <laughs> but it, it's sort of like it 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 made me far more appreciate when I do earn something that I did earn it, so I'm entitled to it, yeah. 
And yeah. and I have found that yeah. if if in my life if I have not truly earned something, chances are I'll lose it. But yeah. but if yeah. if I really earned it, it's it's mine. And you know, if if I destroy it or lose it on my own, that's my own fault. But but so so that I've so that you know, life lessons are so amazing. Instead of looking yeah. at them as disasters look at them in my opinion as this is an amazing lesson i survived it so i must have learned something and let's figure out go. what it is and take that as a gift you know yeah yeah so. you know uh, it's it's a it, it's a wonderful thing i've i've often had people say boy i wish i could have learned this lesson when i was younger i'm i'm approaching death it's almost too late and i said no because the object isn't to learn these lessons before we get old the object is to learn these lessons before we return to the source. And I think a lot of times we can't learn these lessons until we've put in the life years, the time to have the experiences we've had. And then when we look back, then all of a sudden they become real to us. And we say, oh, yeah, that's right. Now <laughs> I understand why things happen the way they did. Yeah, and, and when I have my two-by-four moments where the universe gets my attention by slamming me good, it's like, <laughs> damn, I, sh- I should have earned that a couple of times ago, and it wouldn't have hurt as much. But, oh, you, yeah. you know, I, yeah. I, I think it's, it's a matter of our perspective, and as we get older, I think our perspective gets better. Yeah, I would hope so. It, it, that's what being an elder is all about. But then again, that's this is a whole other subject. But then again, the, you know, the the whole concept of the elder is is being pushed out the window now. Uh, youth is better, you know that that's what we're taught. But oh, yeah, but I they think, don't know yeah, anything. Yeah, I know. The old timers who, who sat around the fires and the campfires without televisions, without radios, without electricity, and taught their children, listen when so and so speaks, because that person is an elder. He's a wise man, a wise woman. Listen to them yeah. because they can teach you a lot. Uh, I think that's wonderful, and we just don't do that much anymore. The other, the other thing is. When we were talking about all sitting down together, I was thinking the other day uh, when I was out from my last bicycle ride, I was going through this, this small town near me, and I realized um, that there weren't any porches on the new houses. Uh, the old houses ah. always had a porch out in front, and they always had uh-huh. uh, you know the uh, um, rocking chairs. And people would sit out on their porch at night and neighbors would walk by and they would gather and they would talk and somebody would put on the coffee or something like that. We don't do that anymore either. The elders are, have been pushed off the porch and we just kind of stick them in the living room and put them in front of the TV. And that's what it means to be an elder nowadays. Oh, it's a, it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of wonderful things about life today, but there's a lot of things that we need to really work on too, I think. Yeah, I my grandchildren have the have the luxury of having traveled all over the world. And <clears throat> when they go off on their trips, I usually say, "Where are you going?" and they'll tell me and I'll say, "Make sure you see this and this and this." And and they don't ever take my advice. And 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 just recently I, I was talking to 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 one of them and and I was I th- I think I was talking about um that there are Kuyu um, chambers that, that are yes, in Turkey yes. and and yeah. Gobekli Tepe, and she said, "Well, we went 
we were there and we didn't see any of that. And I said, well, let me educate you a little bit. And, you know, yeah, she said, well, sure. why, why didn't I know about these? And I said, because you were looking for tourist stuff instead of history. And, yeah. and you know, you're, you're missing the history and the magic of the history. And I said, so that's okay. Just go back. And, uh, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> oh, that when you talk about Duran Crew, you're talking about a, a place that's dear to my heart that I've never been to. I was scheduled to go there and lead a group over there to uh, um, ancient archaeological sites. Uh, um, it turned out that um, the October we were supposed to go was the first October when COVID was so big and everything was canceled. Ah. And so the the trips were put off and put off. And finally, by the time they finally went on the trip last October, I for other reasons, couldn't go. And so I, I missed it. But, uh, oh, there's so much history over there where it all began, during Kuyu and and uh, Gobekli Tepe and Karan Tepe and um, the the mysteries of Istanbul and, and all of those things. Uh, when I was, you know, I've, I've written so many books about them, from ancient civilizations to ancient gods to lost histories or lost civilizations, rather, to ancient gods and, and supernatural gods and, and cover all these things in depth, and yet I've never been able to go. And probably now I won't, but, uh, boy, when you mention that place, you're talking about some place that's really dear to my heart, that's for sure. Well, the the other thing that, that, that I'm fascinated with is I had an author on that, that um, she her, her book was on the petroglyphs of Mu, on an island in by New Zealand, I think, in that area, and she's huh. also writing an, another book on Nan Madau, which <clears throat> which I can't wait to read because you know the yeah. the History Channel has talked about the mysteries and it's cursed and that and and Nan Madau was built in order to signify where Lemuria sank, and yeah. so yeah. so you know there's. There's so much cool stuff out there, and history oh, books yes. aren't teaching any of it. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, history uh, is, uh, you know, shortened span so much. We think we're talking about a long time ago when we say in 1492 Columbus discovered the ocean blue. Uh, you know, 1492 was just like yesterday. <laughs> we're, Jeez, we're talking about some of the, some of these. Some of these places that go back so many thousands and thousands of years, and who knows how many civilizations came before our own that just disappeared. And when we ask ourselves the question why, perhaps Plato had it exactly right when he talked about Atlantis. It was human hubris. We uh, start to neglect the divine within us and neglect that which is very important, and we turn to ourselves and ego is on the rise and narcissism is on the rise and eventually we come to the time when the civilization can easily destroy itself and has to go back and start all over again that's why i think these these stories these stories are so important that's why i wanted to write this trilogy Uh, not a lot of people have read it but like you say at least it's out there and that's i'm taking great comfort in that anyway well, you know, and when they talk about, you know, discovering this or discovering that, discovering um, Gobekli Tepe, it wasn't lost. It just wasn't no. seen. Um, yeah. 
I'm, I'm, America was not lost. When yeah. Columbus was, yeah. and, and he didn't discover America. He didn't even land in America. He never touched feet <laughs> on American soil. I know so, it. I know he, it. You know, I, I think the element of discovery should be, I, I think discovery is a word that should be retired. And, and, and probably um, new awareness would be a better word. Yeah. Because. Yeah. I, I, because I, I think so. I am I am loving this series on the History Channel about um, uh, the Curse of Oak Island. Uh, the last <laughs> couple of weeks, uh, the, the last couple of weeks, there was a, uh, you know, they're they're not just interested looking for a treasure. It's the story that they want to unearth. And this this season especially, they've got all of these new features that nobody knew anything about. And I really got a kick out of last week's episode when uh, they discovered that uh, cut coin that was could be dated back to oh the early 1500s perhaps 1500 which was only eight years after columbus landed in the caribbean and obviously there was a lot of activity going on in america way before columbus and we just <laughs> oh, forgot uh, graham hancock yeah, said it so it, well we are we are a species with amnesia i you know that's a that's a great way of putting it that's a great way of yeah, putting I, it because I have to get back sorry, to the series because we've only got about oh. <laughs> three minutes left. Um, oh. I do, I do want to recommend you can buy all three books at the same time. By the way, on Amazon, yeah. um, uh-huh. and and I, I strongly urge it. They are not um, three hundred and four hundred page books. They are reasonable reads. Um, I'm blessed with the ability to read deep and fast uh but but they are they are enjoyable to read and and i highly recommend you get them and read them like one a week and then think about what you've learned because they are an amazing teaching tool and and when you apply the wisdom in each of the books to your own life you begin to see yourself in a lot of different scenarios which is really phenomenal and i I gotta tell you it's it's an amazing series to wake you up to your own ego and your own potential for being a narcissist from time to time. I mean, it, it all happens. It happens to all of us. We all have those Absolutely. moments when we slip. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. But I want to thank you so much. And this has been such fun again. And, and oh, I, will... I always love talking to you, Barbara, and you're doing important work, taking these kind of conversations out to a wider audience and, um, Really, best best of everything to you, and it's always a pleasure to be with you. I hope we can do it again. Oh, we're going to. I'm going to get a hold of your daughter, and we're going to do um, the latest book. So, uh, oh, and then we can then we can really dig in. <laughs> <laughs> well, fair. It, it's kind of coming attractions. The latest book is on sale at Amazon now for pre-sale, although it won't be released until March 7th. But the name is called The American Cults, uh, and uh, why America is such a ripe land or country for cults and why cult, cult activity has, has been so predominant here for throughout our whole history. So hope people like it. Yeah, I'm so looking forward to this, and I will, I will definitely be in touch with you, and we will uh, compare notes as we go along. So thank you again. Wonderful. It's been such a pleasure again, and uh, I will you. be talking to you soon. Real good. Thanks, Barbara. My pleasure. 
And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Uh, this will be up on YouTube. Please check out the YouTube channel. And if you like what you see, please subscribe. Um, this is my ego talking. We're, we're really cranking on trying to build our numbers. <laughs> so join us again. Uh, we'll be back here on Monday and uh, with another fascinating show. Good night now.